Welcome back to the On the Blue Couch podcast with Kathleen Brennan. This podcast is about any and all things related to therapy. Hi, all. I'm here with Siobhan Morse. And to just give you a little bit of information about her before we begin, uh, she is the Divisional Director of Clinical Services Research Special Projects for the Behavioral Health Division of Universal Health Services. She supports the development and evaluation of substance use disorder programs and shares findings with the industry at large. Siobhan has been conducting research and working in the substance use treatment industry since 2006. And within this time, she's been conducting research, publishing articles, and providing education within addiction services context. So she's also a master addiction counselor. I found out about Siobhan Morse because I came across one of her upcoming presentations at the Cocaine Meth and Stimulant Summit. And for those of you who are interested, the Stimulant Summit will be a virtual event November 20th through the 22nd of this year, 2020. Um, so you can find out more at onthebluecouch.com about uh, the event itself. I'm very excited to have this conversation today because we're just coming off of a three-part episode on addiction intervention and recovery during a pandemic. And so it would make a lot of sense to talk about treatment. And it's an area that Siobhan knows a lot about. So not only does she have experience with clinical direct services, but she also has the experience of the research. She's the one who gets to ask the questions and find the answers and also move into educating people about those. We got a lot to talk about today. Hi, Siobhan. Welcome Hi, to On the Blue Couch. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You. I also want to ask you about this recent award that you received. Can you tell listeners about this? Yeah. Thank you so much. So super honored. Um, in September, I did a webinar for uh, the White House with the Office of National Drug Control Policy and with the Department, uh, the Bureau of Justice Administration. And... Um, I didn't know it was going to happen, but the director of ONDCP um, at the end of his conversation, at his presentation, awarded me a presidential proclamation acknowledging the work that I have done um, in the treatment industry and, and to further recovery. So it, it was just truly amazing. I'm super That honored. is truly amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So kind of moving just right into learning more about you, um, can you tell us more about your role at UHS? I'm very interested in hearing about what you're doing there right now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so at UHS, really what I get to do is help support all of the substance use treatment programs, as well as, you know, UHS has over 200 acute psychiatric hospitals. And many of them also provide some level of substance use treatment, whether it's detoxification or outpatient services, sometimes residential. And so I get to help support the programming efforts as well as um, some of the evaluation efforts when it comes to UHS. And then I also um, have the opportunity to do some um, additional research, both with the data and then supporting really UHS wide, um, all of their activities helping support some of the research projects that are going on now. So um, it's a great role. I'm, I'm really excited about my work. Before we move into what the research is and looking at treatment and outcomes and, you know, how families and clients can navigate, you know, finding effective, exceptional treatment, 
Um, I'm really curious about how do you come up with the questions and figure out what research you're going to do? Um, often it's really just, so, so there's a number of different ways. So I'm going to uh, kind of back up a little bit. One of the okay. things about substance use treatment is that traditionally it's um, been offered in sort of a, um, a late way, right? So substance use disorder is a chronic long-term disease, just like any other chronic long-term disease, diabetes, hypertension, you know, cancer, right? And the, the mantra of all of those disorders is always prevention, early detection, early intervention. And that's really never been the case when it comes to substance use disorder. So a lot of the work and the research that I've done in the past, say, eight years has been focusing on, so for example, identifying characteristics maybe associated with patients who either stay in treatment or leave treatment early. Because Mm -hmm. for example, if we know who's going to maybe leave treatment early, We can prevent that and create safer treatment environments and offer treat, you know, offer interventions earlier that keep a patient where they need to be. So that would be Mm -hmm. one example, Mm -hmm. but I've been, I've spent a lot of time looking at that and then looking at outcomes, um, just really generic outcomes when it comes to across the system of care. So I asked questions of the, um, the data that we have that have to do with, well, gosh, is there an, um, um, an association between age and outcome, mm-hmm. you know, or do, um, do my, the services that we're providing seem to work better for this group or for that group? And how can we make, you know, what are the differences? So what are the differences between, um, for example, patients 25 and under versus patients 26 and over? And it's mm-hmm. interesting because, um, some of the difference, really significant differences are found when it comes to how they want people to interact with them, uh, right? And so that's super important because we need to be able to engage patients and mm-hmm. create, build those relationships. And then I'll ask questions like, so how important is building relationships? So, um, but, you know, a, a lot of times in research, the, um, uh, the question might provide some answers, right? The the Uh research, but the one thing you can be sure of is if you do enough research, you get more questions. Okay. And then so on and then continue. So how did you end up in a research role? Um, How did that evolve for you in the addiction industry? Well, many, many moons ago, Uh (laughs) um, I worked in research in um, clinical pharmacology research, like medical clinical trials. Uh Um, And so I had an understanding of that. And then while I was working on my master's degree at um, Florida International University, I was able to work with a professor who taught research and evaluations. And so I got to work on a National Institute of Mental Health demonstration project for the severely and persistently mentally ill. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, through that and some other projects with him, I learned about, you know, program evaluation and community research. And so um, as I got into the addiction field, it just all kind of got blended. And um, I was able to apply those skills and that understanding to supporting the industry. Okay. So when we think of treatment, what are the different places where people can seek treatment and what do those settings look like for them? There's a lot of different settings, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so 
everything from, you know, first presenting with an overdose, for example, at an emergency room, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if that happens to your loved one, you want to ask for social services and you want to ask for direct referrals. You want to make sure that you leave there with information. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's, you know, a lot of doctors, you know, uh, primary care physicians now are able to support, um, all types of behavioral health disorders, including especially, for example, opioid use disorder through prescribing, um, you know, in that particular case, through prescribing, prescribing medications that help. And you also always want to ask at, the, you know, if that's sort of your entry for referral and um, support in terms of clinical services, mm-hmm. you know, that may not be available at the doctor's office. There are plenty of outpatient settings um, that, again, back to like this idea of early intervention, right? Mm-hmm. You know, early detection, early intervention. So the earlier in the course of the disease or disorder progression that you're able to intervene, mm-hmm. the more likely you're going to have less and less restrictive care. So intervening early, it might just look like an outpatient mm-hmm. or an intensive outpatient. As this disorder progresses, which just like other long-term chronic you know, diseases left unchecked, mm-hmm. the disorder will continue to progress. Mm-hmm. And um, then you're probably going to be looking at maybe a partial hospitalization or some form of hospitalization, maybe at a residential treatment center. There's extended, there's different lengths of stays, there's extended, but a a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, going to residential, for example, is often about removing an individual from the environment, giving the body and their mind an opportunity to detox, Mm -hmm. and then offering them some new skills so that they can then step down to less restrictive care in an outpatient setting, Mm -hmm. continue to work on their living skills, continue to be reinforced and deal with anything that, you know, maybe is going on for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And they can reenter the community. Mm -hmm. Um, Having had that break and having, you know, understood the disease concept. Where do you think we are with understanding the disease concept? Where do we need to go with that? Yeah. So we've come a long way. I will say that um, we no longer, you know, and, and a lot of the, the distance that we have come is thanks to moms, thanks to grassroots moms whose sons and daughters and, fa- you know, family members uh-huh. somehow got hooked on opioids, right? Mm-hmm. And they finally talked about it. You know, there were so many young person deaths that were like, um, you know, where, a respiratory disorder maybe was defined or something, but really it was an overdose. And finally the moms mm-hmm. really started banding together and said, we've had enough. Here's what happened to my child. Mm-hmm. And I need to talk about it and I need other people to know. And, um, and so as that happened, as communities, as families and communities said, you know what, this is touching us. This is happening. This is very real. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been able to reduce the stigma you know, slowly and surely we are not where, um, we need to be Mm -hmm. so often, um, substance use disorder is considered a behavioral problem, right. Mm -hmm. As opposed, you know, as opposed to a true brain disease. If you Google, it's interesting because this, um, it's, it's Nora Volkow and the national Institute of drug abuse have done a great job of redefining what the definition of addiction for people so that they understand, you know, it's a brain disorder. But mm-hmm. about eight years ago, if you Googled the term um, relapsing brain disorder, which is part of the definition now, 
Uh Do you know what came up on Google? Multiple sclerosis, right? It's a relapsing brain disorder. Now think about how we think of a person with MS Mm -hmm. versus how we think of a person with a substance use disorder. So that's the distance we need to close. That's the gap right there. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about just how shame-ridden addiction can be for, you know, the client and for families that are going through it and how brave those mothers had to be to step forward and come out of that shame to then solve and start to create change. Yeah, it is absolutely true. And it took some time, but there's so many Facebook and it's unfortunate because so many lives were lost Mm -hmm. in the process. You know, Mm -hmm. there are tons of Facebook groups of moms who've lost, you know, um, um, sons and daughters. Um, And so, yeah, it's really great that we were able to move past that. Shame often is what causes us to continue the behavior that causes the shame, right? Mm -hmm. And that other diseases, people don't experience shame like they would with an addiction, at least right now. Right. It's, Mm -hmm. it's so very true. And so again, that's part of the stigma and, Mm -hmm. um, and really just, you know, and it's hard it's hard not to, to, you know, um, look at someone and be like, why can't you just stop? But the truth is, again, it is, Uh, it's a brain disorder and mm -hmm. it's not that simple. Um, I recently watched a Ted talk given by, again, I'll mention her name, Nora Volkow at National Institute of Drug Abuse. And, um, I thought I was watching something about addiction until I realized she was talking about eating food addiction. And it was fascinating to me because I thought of the whole stigma around that concept as well. So um, we still have some work to do, but we're getting better. Maybe you're starting with the elements of what goes into effective, uh, exceptional treatment that you're aware of right now. Right. So one of the things that we know about substance use disorder is that very often um, other issues co-occur, other mental health issues co-occur. So Trauma is very closely linked, you know, history of trauma, um, Mm -hmm. like the ACEs study, you know, adverse childhood experiences, for example, Mm -hmm. very closely linked with, um, with developing a substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. We also know there's some socioeconomic factors that are very closely linked to developing a substance use disorder. And then there's some mental health, you know, psychiatric and mental health issues are also very closely linked. So first I'm going to look for a program that has the capacity to deal with the, the, the duly diagnosed, the co-occurring disorders, right? Mm-hmm. So can it also handle, um, even if it's just a situational depression, right? Can it also handle that? And how do I know that they're good at it, right? So for example, um, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, mm-hmm. puts out guidelines for what a, a facility that's doing uh, what we call dual diagnosis or co-occurring treatment, you know, should be able to, you know, sort of the standards, right? Mm -hmm. They put out guidelines for that and they do the same for trauma informed. Mm -hmm. So while it may not be appropriate, you know, in a 21 day, for example, treatment setting to address all your trauma issues, it should be a trauma informed environment, Mm -hmm. right? Meaning that the milieu Um, the structure and the staff are all um, sort of trauma facing and trauma aware and they're um, they're created and they're trained and they're maintained in a way that does not re-traumatize an individual. Mm -hmm. 
mm -hmm. that makes sense. So that's kind of, I'm going to start with the psychiatric piece. Then I'm also going to look. So are my clinicians, are the clinicians at this facility master's level or above? And is, are they licensed? And how much time do the licensed and master's level and professional staff actually spend with the patients, mm -hmm. right? So that's significant to me. That matters. I want my loved one to actually be working with somebody, you know, who is, is licensed. So I want to and say it, something about that. Yes. Yeah, I just have a question about that because I know that sure. some places have like a team of interns and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I've seen actually facilities that seem like there's a lot of treatment that actually happens um, with interns and people who aren't licensed yet. Can you comment a little bit more on that? So yeah. you need to have a, a certain amount of hours, mm -hmm. for example, with the license and with the you know, license and or master's level. The, the concept of peer support, that was actually going to be my next thing. Okay. Is there, yeah. Is there availability of peer support? And I don't only mean 12 step. I mean, there's a, there's actually now a role called peer support specialist, um, which is, is unique and really important because, you know, the, the ability of somebody to identify with, I totally understand what it feels like to be right now, to know that someone feels that mm -hmm. can, really go a long way. And they then have this firsthand and personal knowledge of, well, here's how I got through it. So you want a nice balance of both, mm -hmm. but you don't want to, um, you know, like an hour a day of licensed treatment is really, if you're in a, a, a residential setting, that's really not appropriate, right? It should be a significant period of time with plenty also time for reflection and time with, with peer and, you know, that type of service. So you mm -hmm. do want both. I would look for the use of medications, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't want a place where everybody gets medication, but I also don't want a place where nobody gets medication, right? So uh -huh. for example, when it comes to um, opioid use disorder, I want a place that's going to look individually at my loved one, my family member, and be able to create a treatment and a care, a long-term care plan that extends mm -hmm. beyond just that facility that, you know, um, is super individualized. Okay. Yeah. That's significant. And then finally, mm -hmm. my question is, how do you know, right? So how do you know that you're doing a good job as a treatment center? What are the outcomes? And not just like, uh, you know, our patients are very satisfied. That's important, right? That's great. Uh, you know, people who are satisfied, especially if they're satisfied with their progress, not just the treatment they received in the past, but like patients who are satisfied with their progress are often more engaged. So that matters, but how well are they doing later? Mm -hmm. Right. So, and, and that's, that's hard. Not a lot of places are able to, to follow the patient. Right. So for example, what ends up happening is they try to make it seem like this is this is really the way it goes for everybody, but they're really only reporting on a small proportion of the patients. Um, for me, in that situation, honesty goes a long way. So tell me that you really only reached 50 patients. And at least I'll know that you're you've got integrity in this conversation, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so looking at the outcomes, looking at what the outcomes represent, and looking at a variety of outcomes. Abstinence is not the only, yes, we would love it if we could send somebody to treatment and they stayed abstinent for the rest of their life after a 21 day episode. That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. And so when someone has multiple sclerosis, how often do they have a relapse? 
mm-hmm. right? It's a right. relapsing brain disorder. It's right. part of the definition. So, you know, I, I knew a therapist who used to say fall forward. So I want to know things like, so what about the last, maybe not the whole year they stayed abstinent, but how were they the last 30 days? Like, were, did they fall down and get back up? Did you, did they learn those skills from you? Mm-hmm. And actually has their housing situation improved since they went to treatment with you if it needed? Um, are they employed or going to school now as opposed to maybe where they were? What about their relationships in their life? Have, do, do they feel like they've improved the relationships in their life? Are they still struggling with legal issues? So I want, a, I want a variety of things. Interestingly enough, the, there is a, a diagnostic manual, the old DSM-4TR, right? Mm-hmm. That has a, uh, a, disc, a, a actually criteria for remission from substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. So I like it when I see that type of conversation because that makes sense in a long-term disease. Mm-hmm. So maybe they still have slips here and there, but overall, are they able to traverse life without needing constant treatment? Does that make sense? So yeah, yeah, those are some of the things, especially in the outcomes world that I'm going to look for. So are all places, are all treatment centers required to do some sort of evaluation? Is it more of a choice? So joint commission in the past couple of years Mm -hmm. said that uh, substance use and joint commissions, a, a very large accrediting body out of Chicago, right? Yeah. By you. Um, and they accredit, um, they have standards for how treatment should be provided in all of behavioral health. And they um, have standards specific to substance use facilities. And one of the things that they implemented in the past few years is the collection of outcomes. However, in most cases in, in medicine, right? Um, we're talking about short and acute disorders, medical, the medical field in general, all of us still think, you know, just fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they often look at what was it like at admission and what is it like at discharge? And that's kind of how the joint commission is looking at it for now. Okay. Was there a change between it? So it's a start. That's good. It's significant. It matters. Um, And ultimately um, hopefully we are moving to a, uh, an industry that understands the importance of, of collecting long-term information. What do you think gets in the way of engagement with clients to gather more information about where they're at, how they're doing? Well, so, I mean, there's some really basic, simple things. And one would be, um, you know, one of the first things we tell somebody when they come to treatment is you should really change your phone number because, you know, that all those people may not be good in your life, you know, depending on, on where they are, but that's a very common conversation. And so now you just lost the method. <laughs> they leave treatment, you know, you, so working with that, we've, we found when I was running a, a large research department that was collecting those when your outcomes, that actually was an issue that we had to overcome. Um, but it really probably the biggest issue is the stigma. Like okay. I'm embarrassed. I don't want to, I'm ashamed. I don't want to have to tell you that I, I screwed up again. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just going to hide from you. Um, mm-hmm. I think that has, um, you know, there's that. And then there's often when we're caught in that cycle and in that shame, we don't want help right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, so, you know, that's probably one of the hardest things for the families, you know, is, is being able to, 
Um, and, and I truly believe, and that's probably another criteria I would add to important at, at, in treatment facilities, um, definitely would add, is um, what kind of care and support are they offering the families, uh-huh. right? So when you're looking for treatment for a loved one, you know, also remember to say, what about me? Mm-hmm. What do you got for me? Mm-hmm. You know, are you just going to hand me a list of meetings I could go to, or do you actually provide some services to me or have for me or have direct recommendations and referrals for me? Because I get it. Not everybody's going to be able to provide fam- all of, you know, full spectrum of family services, but let's get some referrals and some recommendations set up for family members because family members, A, need to learn what a boundaries are and set boundaries. And, you know, the entire family um, becomes sort of sick when there is um, someone who has a substance use disorder and is just creating such dysfunction in mm-hmm. the family and being able to you know, address all of that. Um, I would also say one other thing that we didn't touch on is, um, and it, it's, I think more, more of a therapist to therapist conversation, but um, it, it's really important that um, facilities um, and treat hospitals, you know, especially now with COVID, that they are sort of managing their caregivers, right? That they're mm-hmm. able to do, you know, to recognize what compassion fatigue is, that they're able to support therapists and other staff, you know, through these times. So while a family member may not ask, you know, what, what do you do for your staff? I feel like, you know, as, as therapists, interventionists, people like that, that is appropriate part of the conversation when you're looking and evaluating treatment centers. And so what kind of services just to, for families who are listening, mm-hmm. uh, would you just say they should ask about? Like, do you offer this particular service for, for us? Okay. So for the family, so do you offer family groups? Mm-hmm. What level of family therapy will we be doing? What level of participation will, will I have in the, the, um, the planning and the implementation of a treatment plan. And and so some of this has to do with HIPAA and, you know, a family member that's in treatment can always say, no, I don't want my family to know. So, you know, again, asking, and then what about me? Do I get access to a therapist? Do I get access to some form of treatment? You know, what information beyond the welcome letter will you be offering me? And it doesn't even um, always need to be, you know, a therapy session. I mean, even just having solid information, um, you know, pamphlets, websites, videos, anything that speak to understanding addiction, understanding Mm -hmm. substance use disorder, understanding some of the mental health issues that go hand in hand with substance use disorder, um, helping families recognize the difference between behavioral problem, behavioral disorder, right? The disease process, Mm -hmm. Um, helping families recognize signs of relapse. You know, all of that type of education goes a long way. Well, I think you mentioned something that sometimes I assume that families know and don't always, and that is it's the family system that actually is sick and it's not just the individual. And I think that that can be actually really empowering because then people don't have to be stuck in isolation and alone. Mm -hmm. And so would it be okay to just talk a little bit more about what that even means when the family system is sick and about that? Yeah, for sure. So Mm -hmm. um, um, I've actually had the honor and privilege of of spending some time with a woman named Judith Landau, who is, um, um, I'm an Arise interventionist. I learned intervening um, from her, her and her team. Um, and it's a family system intervention. Um, Judith 
Landau um, has done a bunch of a great deal of publishing and work studying family systems, studying the impact of trauma on a family mm-hmm. as well. Um, but basically, what happens is all of this energy goes towards this, what, what she refers to as the AI, that the, the addicted individual, the patient. And um, it's sort of like there's alliances that are built and relationships are sacrificed. And when you then remove that individual from the picture, you really begin to see some of the dysfunction. And there's this homeostasis also that has been created in a family system. And so you'll hear uh, patients sometimes talk about, it's almost like their parents or their loved ones want them to go back to using. Because when they come home different, the homeostasis is now changed. It's not on a conscious, it's a very unconscious thing that happens. Um, So it's really very delicate conversations to have with the family to say, Mm -hmm. so this, you know, a triangle went to treatment and a circle is going to come home. And you may not know how to interact with the circle Mm -hmm. because you're so used to dealing with a triangle. Um, Helping them rebuild trust, helping relationships, you know, heal. So often a patient wants to go home and say, I'm sorry. And, you know, we kind of just, I have always discouraged. Okay. So, you know, you could say you're sorry, but like, we're not going to have big conversations around that because they've heard you say, I'm sorry. So many times when you say, I'm sorry, what they hear is, yeah, I'm going to do that again. So it's about, you know, trust is about being responsible over time is what builds trust. And that takes time. So really being able to work with both sides um, to help rebuild that. Anything else you want to speak to as far as what families should ask as far as questions for seeking out treatment for their loved ones? No, I I think, you know, looking at um, basically dual diagnosis and psychiatric services, um, looking at the availability of professional, you know, time with professionals, mm-hmm. as well as time with appropriate peers, looking at the existence and how much family service, you know, is being offered, right, mm-hmm. family support, mm-hmm. um, and then focusing on um, um, the outcomes piece. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sort of secondarily, also looking at, you know, what type of care and support is offered for actually the treatment teams. Mm -hmm. And how would you suggest that people find interventionists? So that's, you know, can be the in-between piece as well for getting into treatment. Um, So uh, there are associations of interventionists. Um, Often facilities can help you find interventionists. So I do want to make a note about this. So Mm -hmm. you're a therapist and you know this, right? You offer three you offer alternatives, right? So when looking for an interventionist, I believe that unless you've already made a decision on the treatment center, Mm -hmm. right? And you say, I definitely want my loved one going here. Can you give me an interventionist? That's fine. Great. But, uh, um, and the interventionist comes in and, and the idea is we're getting them to this one treatment center. But otherwise in general, right? When you're just going looking for an interventionist, that interventionist should have a conversation with you about a number of different treatment centers. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important. That's just sort of an ethics thing. Again, if you've already decided on the treatment center, that's fine. It's a different thing, Mm -hmm. right? But um, the job of the interventionist is to help you get your loved one to treatment. 
and to help you decide which treatment, right? And so they're going to give you different options, just like a therapist would offer. You know, there's all different kinds of interventions. It really depends. Um, you know, there's the model where it's, you know, basically the entire family does work with the interventionist and it's several meetings and, you know, it's a little bit longer term. There's also just crisis interventions like, wow, this is, they, they overdosed twice last month. We need to make this happen right now, you know? Um, and so there's actually a thing called crisis interventions, um, which could happen in theory, could happen in an ER as needed. For me, I mean, I w- there's helplines I would call. Yeah, an yeah so, so do you have any examples of numbers that people or resources where people could call to find interventionist services? Well, um, one example would be you could call Foundations Recovery Network mm-hmm. um, at 844-675-1707. Mm-hmm. And they have a team there that will help you find an interventionist. Okay. I'll put that, web, that resource on my website as well as a few others so people have them. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, given that we're in this time of a pandemic, are there any other things that you think people should be thinking about with intervention, with uh, finding treatment that not even think about that might even be different now that you're seeing? Yeah. So there are all kinds of reports coming out of the CDC as well as other organizations about first the especially now also add in the election stress um, with, you know, stress, depression, anxiety impacting people's lives. Mm -hmm. The CDC has actually made a recommendation that says if you believe stress is affecting your your daily activities for more than just a couple days, you know, one or two days in a row, you need to reach out to your healthcare professionals, right? Um, And UHS actually did a, a survey with over a thousand Americans and found that not that many people are really willing to do that. They are not feeling comfortable doing that Um, as well. They also found that people are way more comfortable with telehealth for medicine than with telehealth for behavioral health. And really right now in this kind of COVID milieu, telehealth is how many services are being offered. Um, it's really interesting because, you know, when it comes to medicine, you think you need to touch and feel and measure. And so it seems like telehealth would feel, feel less, right, accessible, um, but people are more comfortable with it on the medical side. Um, and so, you know, perhaps um, as therapists in general, we can, um, we can do some work to help people become more comfortable. Yeah, I wondered what it's like out there just because I'm in solo practice and, you know, I've had longstanding clients that I'm working with and have worked with. And I think it's really striking that the CDC is actually saying this right now. And I'm like, have there been other times in history where we've had that kind of thing on that website or that they've been making that recommendation? No. And, you know, there's been a huge surge in overdose deaths in many states. Can you say more about, yeah, what is happening So there's a number of different factors. So there's less accessibility to treatment, right? And there's less recognition of the need for treatment. And, you know, there is a very strong percent of the population that, you know, um, is what do they do when they're stressed out? So you have a couple of drinks. Well, now you're home. You don't leave your home very much. You're nervous. You're stressed out. Um, There's, you're having relationship issues, you know, there's all these things, domestic violence is up. I mean, so much going on 
And um, I, I think there's a certain percentage of the population who either purposefully or inadvertently um, maybe misusing and abusing substances to kind of get through. You know, here's the thing, especially when it comes to someone with a substance use disorder, it doesn't sound always like I'm going to go get high and party. That's not always the conversation in, in your head. A lot of times it just sounds like I really need something to take the edge off, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the, that's, um, that's where I think that happens. Even in the poll that we did, there was about 12% of Americans who said they're drinking more or using substances to help cope. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't have the buffers that are, were so accessible. I think we're realizing what those buffers were and how much community we actually were in, whether it just be in one class or going to get a cup of coffee mm-hmm. or, you know, saying hello to a neighbor. And now people are keeping their distance and eyes are down depending on where you are mm-hmm. uh, right now geographically. So yeah, there's an, it's a, you know, the truth is one of the most, one of the preventive factors associated with um, you know, development of any type of substance use disorder has always been um, social interaction and social networks. And the sense of loneliness, um, the sense of social isolation, I mean, loneliness is happening now like it never happened, and even social cues. So if you have a mask on, that's what it's like to live in a social awkward world probably, right? You don't get those social cues anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that can actually feel isolating, you know, like that it's so simple and basic, but like, you know, how good it feels to smile and to be smiled at. I was making a joke to my friend the other day that I was learning how to smile with my eyes and it just wasn't cutting it, you know, it's like not. you can feel like the biggest mm-hmm. smile ever and you just know you're not getting that feedback. So, yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's, um, it's a very difficult and interesting time. And um, then learning how to, so many, many people without access to, um, to internet and to the ability to join social groups, you know, like that. A lot of companies have, have done some great work there to create that type of access, but it's also just limited accessibility of services. So, um, you know, and then you have other things like, um, you know, in opioid treatment programs in order to avoid having to come in every day to get your medication. Uh, People were given, you know, extended periods of take home and maybe they, you know, were on the edge of really being ready for that. So there's a a number of factors that have contributed to it, but I would think the greatest is probably the stress. Mm -hmm. Are beds, so that I understand, are there less beds available now? And okay. There are as many, there's there's the same number of beds, but people are reluctant to travel. um, And, you know, again, that's one end of the spectrum of services. Mm-hmm. The front end of the spectrum of services is often, you know, an outpatient setting. And so a lot of outpatient settings have moved to telehealth. Americans are not that comfortable with telehealth yet. So it has resulted um, in some. So for people already in services, they have great accessibility right now. Mm-hmm. For people who did not have services and are trying to access service, it's kind of a push pull. There are services, but it's non-traditional and it might feel weird for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I don't know what your um, interaction has been with telehealth, Mm -hmm. with talking to people about it. I was surprised by how well it's going, actually. 
So I was really concerned about, I don't think this is going to work. Uh, this one, these one-on-one sessions, I'm used to being in the room. I haven't been in the room with a client since March and still having weekly sessions and all of that. And it's been working. And in some ways there are interesting pros to somebody being right. like at home in their, in their space you know, talking about difficult things. So we did an informal poll at, um, we have a opioid treatment program in Greenwood, Indiana, and we just informally polled some of the therapists and the patients. And what we found is that um, there is some restriction based on, you know, you don't get to see all of the body cues and all of the other nonverbal cues that a therapist might want to work with. But what they feel like is that for some patients, it's really allowing them to open up because they're in a comfort, comfortable environment. They're not face to face with someone. So that distance gives them a little bit more comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're able to make their appointments more easily because nobody has to worry about childcare, transportation, those types of things. So um, it, it's probably very person dependent, but there are some advantages for some folks. Yes. Yeah, and I've wondered about what we're learning now, how that might be more in, integrated into treatment in the future. So again, I think there's a predictive analysis there. What factors are associated with you know, positive long-term outcomes um, and telehealth, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, another area to research. Um, I had a question that just with seeing in the news that you know pharmaceutical companies are being held accountable, more held accountable, I guess, for the opiate crisis. Mm. Um, I know, or are they? I know very, I see that they owe billions of dollars and like, is that accountability? And will people actually see those billions of dollars distributed to people who need it? What are your thoughts about it? Yeah, I honestly don't know how or where that funding goes and how, um, you know, uh, if communities who need it are able to access it and how they're able to access it. I think what's interesting is there is, so for the opioid crisis, part of the solution truly is another medication for individuals. You share with people which one that is or which so, ones those well, are? Well, there's, there's, there's more than one. There are a number of different medications which can help an individual and it's all kind of classified under um, medication assisted treatment but there's a couple of different types of medications that can help individuals who have opioid use disorder um, sort of help their brain heal and help them um, enter recovery and enter long-term recovery and support them. I almost feel like um, part of what needs to be done is uh, if you were part of the cause, maybe you don't get to profit off the solution too if that makes sense, right? Um, I think there's something interesting there, if that makes sense. Um, that's just a personal opinion. I don't want to say that. Anybody well, that's, what was, that's what's been happening. And that's been part of the discussion that here's the problem and you just offered the solution. And so now you're making money on the problem that you created. Yeah. Yeah. So that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would really like to see, um, honestly, because there's some, really, there's some communities that were really hard hit. And there's also... Um, um, a lot of people who are currently incarcerated um, as a result of. So that's one area I would like to see receive some funding and receive the ability to offer medications, receive the ability to offer treatment. You know, it's unfortunate that we um, are still sort of um, placing people with a known brain disease 
in a punitive system so often mm-hmm. for having the behaviors that are the result. I understand that you need to make amends for, um, you know, things that you did, but um, it's not rehabilitative if we're not offering rehabilitative services. Most prisons are really barely unable to offer just what they offer, much less, you know, have any type of services, support groups. Um, You know, to be honest, even a free program that might want to go in like a church or a 12 step to a prison costs the prison money because they have to move the inmates. And so they need, you know, um, they need officers on staff to be able to do that. And, and, And so I think helping that population would really make a huge difference. I think creating better and more um, jail diversion services across the country and supporting the use of medication in those services, supporting peer services within existing programs. I think there's a lot that could be done and that would be really helpful. So anyway, you were talking about communities that might need it. Anything you want to speak to as far as what's happening factor-wise with specific communities that are more at risk for a drug crisis? Socioeconomic factors like poverty, mm-hmm. um, housing stability, uh, domestic stability, you know, like if there's domestic violence, if there's child abuse, child neglect, um, or a family history um, of drug use, those are all strong risk factors for the development of substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you talk about spending that money, um, you know, preventive services don't look like necessarily a campaign or a class that's, you know, says don't use drugs. Um, all of that's important, um, but it also includes, you know, do people have appropriate housing who are, you know, entering recovery? And how do you, how do you help support that? People coming out of treatment and facilities and jail diversion programs do, is their housing, you know, available for them? Um, you know, it, it, it extends kind of far and wide. Um, looking at the ability to vote, reinstating rights, reinstating constitutional rights, training programs, you know, the availability of jobs. So somebody who has a substance use disorder that may have been arrested may really have a significant, even if they have a great education, might have a really big issue finding a decent job or a job where they get to use their education. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a, a lot there in that conversation. But, um, you know, as far as um, our communities, really identifying at-risk youth, helping support those environments and working with um, youth you know, and young adults who've experienced trauma. It's one of the, probably the greatest things that we can do to help in the prevention conversation. So is there any other kind of research that you think uh, moving forward that we need to focus on that hasn't been already? I think really as an industry, the, the biggest conversation on the table as far as research goes is the outcomes conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at and not just what happens after treatment again, but you know, really looking at um, factors you know, at the front end um, and how to support mitigating those factors um, in different populations, in different socioeconomic classes, in different groups of people. And then looking at, so it's one thing to say you have outcomes, right? It's another to say you have outcome-informed treatment. So the purpose of research 
right? Mm -hmm. Is to present information. Mm -hmm. Information informs decisions. Mm -hmm. So we can do all the research in the world and have all of these really impressive articles. But for me, if I'm not able to feed this new information back into the system in a meaningful way to better meet the needs of our patients, it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. And that's really, um, I, I think, where as an industry, we need to make some decisions. Um, so what is, what are the outcomes? You know, let's pick five, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's great, you know, National Association of Behavioral Health right now as an addiction quality committee. And that's some of the questions we're trying to address and to come up with some standards and the same way that in medical care, you have those, you know, outcomes and you do the health grades and, and all of that. And there's a number of groups looking at these types of questions. So it's, it's on the table, mm-hmm. but it's really, I think, so difficult for consumers, right? For families, for people who need services, um, to be able to know what their loved one needs as, and f- to be able to find that mm-hmm. right now, because mm-hmm. we don't, you know, as an industry agree and, and um, we, you can't compare right now. And I know we have a little bit more time. And one of my questions is going to be around the process of change uh, within addiction and treatment. And I don't know if you have any time to speak a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Uh, so families yeah. and clients can know more about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to be honest, actually, there's been great research done in why and how people change, not just in substance use disorder, but in big decisions. So um, one of the things that we know is change is a long-term process, right? Recovery is a long-term process and it's going to go through various stages. So if you think about, for example, the last time you made a new year's resolution, right? Think, yeah. Let's say your resolution was, I'm, I'm going to start eating well and I'm going to lose 10 pounds, right? So do you remember the month before the, you know, December, for example, before that resolution took hold, right? Well, that's called pre-contemplative. You're not even willing to think about it. You're going to do that later someday, not thinking about it right now. And probably we're a little off the chain over the holidays with the eating and the not exercising. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully, right, as the holidays passed and as the New Year's resolution kicked in, you got into a contemplative stage where you said, okay, I really need to get going on this, right? And so sometimes it takes us a little time to move from contemplation to action, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, but hopefully by the end of January or so, you had actually not just paid a membership at a gym, but begun showing up and gotten into action. Mm -hmm. And then when you do that for a period of time, you can build sort of a habit and you can move into maintenance. Mm -hmm. And that's how Um, Those stages is the exact same way that patients are when it comes to coming into treatment and, and, you know, moving into recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, We also know that about 30% of why people change is related to relationships. That's significant. Right. Mm -hmm. And so really being able to build those therapeutic alliances um, and including sort of those extra therapeutic factors as well is significant. Um, and finally hope, right? You know, I guess I want, if I'm also, if I'm looking for treatment for somebody, um, I want to send them somewhere that, you know, feels hopeful where the staff sounds like, um, they're optimistic, 
mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So that's an important factor as well. Well, and I think you had talked about earlier burnout, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you see staff moving in there and they're not being supported, it's hard to hold hope. And so um, supporting staff is super important to hold the hope for clients because they can really feel it. Yeah. And yeah. so really, actually, I guess one more thing that would be important when I look is, um, you know, it's not just so evidence, but using evidence based treatment is important. Um, but most family members aren't going to really understand what that means. And that's a term that's that's kind of overused. So inside of hope, what I want to know is that this uh, facility or treatment center is is being very recovery oriented. Right. So they're addressing all of the different holistic needs of this individual and looking at it in a long term sense. They're not you know, it's not an acute like this, a one and done Mm -hmm. Um, and that their focus is truly holistically across what the individual needs as well as long term in its focus. So SAMHSA, again, um, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration on their website, they have uh, a definition of what recovery is and uh, sort of a roadmap of recovery-oriented care. Mm-hmm. And those are great resources for both therapists and for individuals looking to learn more about treatment. Okay. And that's on SAMHSA. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll make sure to include that too. Um, thank you so much for this really rich and informative conversation. I learned so much today. Uh, is there anything else you feel like we should add to our conversation that might be useful So if you are listening and you or a loved one are struggling right now with a substance use disorder, there's hope. Mm -hmm. Please don't give up. Please don't give in. Know that recovery is possible. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today on The Blue Couch. On the Blue Couch is hosted by Kathleen Brennan, a psychotherapist specializing in trauma, anxiety, complex PTSD, and basically any form of loss or other life transitions. You can learn more about Kathleen and her practice at KathleenRBrennan.com. Check out her blog or follow Kathleen R. Brennan on Medium. Music for the podcast is the song Piano Hope by KB. This podcast is edited by Popped Collar Productions, a company specializing in creating innovative solutions through podcasting. Learn more at poppedcollar.net. Please share this show with others and hop onto Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcatcher of choice is and give us a good review. It helps others to find the show. We will be back soon to explore new adventures and new innovations in therapy right here on The Blue Couch. <laughs>